0: Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 2, John chapter 2. Part of our strategy here at Prince is to keep moving people. I don't mean that just because we're going to three services and moving you around all the time. I mean, we want to keep moving people towards intimacy with Jesus Christ. So our desire is that you would build relationships with people who don't know the Lord And then, in building those relationships, they would come to know something about God's presence through you. That they would see something in you. That you would invite them to events that we have. Or you would invite them into a corporate worship service like this. And in doing so, they might get a taste of the presence of God. And the goal would be to move people into this room so that they can experience God's presence and the people of God together. But that's not the end goal. So just know that if your habit is to just constantly come to Sunday morning service, our vision for you is to move you beyond this. We want to move you into a community group where you can be known and be cared for and be loved or a family group in which people know you and are aware of you and that's where your really care takes place. But we even want to move you beyond that. We want to move you into what we would call a D group or discipleship group. And the reason is because we don't want you to hide it is very possible that you could attend a church like this for 40 years, and you could come to service every Sunday morning, and you could go to a community group every single week, and you could serve faithfully, and yet no one really know what's going on in your life, and you'd be hiding, because you can hide in these atmospheres. So a D group really kind of takes that option off the table. It doesn't allow you to hide. What a D group does is it reads the Bible together on the same reading plan, and it asks questions when it reads the Bible, and then it gets together and discusses and keeps each other accountable and talks about what God is teaching them. And it's a place in which you really get known. When we did groups throughout the years, we've always kind of had the same questions that people ask when they read the Bible. Because the key is just getting you into God's presence, getting you in the Bible. And the questions we would always ask were related to Application. Because we didn't want you to just read, we wanted you to get something out of it. And our goal was that every time you read, you would get one kind of specific application and take it with you through the week. But a couple of years ago, we changed that completely. We changed it because of our conviction that the ultimate goal of reading the Bible is not application. The ultimate goal of the Bible is not just you doing something. The ultimate goal in reading the Bible is that you might see the glory of Jesus Christ. Now listen, I, I've heard preachers say so many times, and I can't stand this statement, the Bible is not about you. Well, that's just not true. The Bible is all about you. From beginning to end, the Bible's about you. It's just not ultimately about you. It's ultimately about Jesus Christ. And so we don't read the Bible ultimately looking for what it says to us, but we read the Bible ultimately asking the question, what does this say about God? Because 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, that we behold the glory of God in Jesus Christ and are transformed into his image. You see, if you read the Bible only just trying to get application, it might be that you're doing a lot of good stuff, but you don't actually know Jesus. But if you read the Bible to see the glory of Jesus, you will not only see Jesus, you will be transformed into his image. And so life change will take place, but because you've been looking at Jesus and you've seen his glory. And that is exactly what John understands. John has written this gospel with the understanding that people are ultimately transformed by holding the glory of Jesus Christ. Now John says his purpose in John 20 is that we might believe in Jesus and have life in his name. So that right there tells us John is writing for people. John wants people to read this book. He wants people to see Jesus. He wants them to believe in Jesus and find life in Jesus. So John writes for people. So the word of God is about you and about you coming to know God. But John has to ask this question. Okay, if I want people to believe and to have life, how do I get them there? Like how can I help people to really believe and then to believe and have life and John finds the answer, and he writes in John 1:14, and the word became flesh, and we beheld his glory. So John, speaking from his own experience, is saying, here's how it happened for me. I started by time with Jesus, proximity to Jesus, being in the presence of Jesus. Let me just say again, this is how it always starts. There's nothing matter more than your proximity to Jesus, your closeness to Jesus, your time with Jesus. Nothing takes the place of that. But in that proximity to Jesus, John was saying, we, we walked with Jesus and we beheld his glory. We saw the signs that Jesus did. John doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs because they're always pointing to something. But he says, we saw the signs and in seeing the signs, we beheld the glory of God. And then when we beheld glory. We believed and then we believed we had life. And so John is writing that the same thing might happen to every one of us. What's the goal? Abundant life. How do we get there by believing? Well, how do we believe by beholding the glory of Jesus? How do we behold the glory of Jesus? By being present with Jesus and seeing what he does. That's exactly what's affirmed again in John chapter two. Look at verse 11, the last verse of our text today. It says this, this, the turning water into wine, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So John is saying that in the turning of the water into wine, Jesus displayed his glory. He made his glory known and we believed and we have come to have life in Jesus. Now remember, when Jesus manifests his glory, it's not just about his power or his ability. It's about his character. The manifestation of Jesus's character is not that we would just see that he is able, but we would see that he desires to do something for us. Not just his power, but his heart and his love and her affection for people. So I think what John is saying is we saw this water to wine thing and we weren't just amazed by the power of what Jesus was able to do, but we saw something about his heart. We saw something about the way he feels about people and it drew us to Jesus and we believed and now we're coming to have life in him. So what I want to do this morning is I want to walk through this text and I want us to be asking this question, how do we see the glory of Jesus in this story and how does that cause us to believe and have life? Let me read it for us in John chapter 2, verses 1-11. through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman... What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, although the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. I wanna walk through this story looking at four key words. And then after we look at those four key words, I want us to see how all four of those words actually manifest the glory of Christ, his power and his character that we might believe and have life. The first word is wedding, wedding. The scene is immediately set for us with just a few words, there was a wedding. And so, right there, that kind of gives us the feel of the text. It allows us to go there and to experience what John wants us to experience, to see what he wants us to see. There was a wedding. Now, the problem we have a little bit is trying to look at this through the lens of the weddings that we know, which were not very much like the weddings in Jesus' day. The first thing we have to know is that a wedding in Jesus' day lasted five to seven days, it was usually in the fall when the harvest time was over and everyone had worked hard and they were exhausted from their work and this was really a time for the entire community to get together, uh, to enjoy the company of one another so the evenings are cool, everyone is ready. You really need to think more like a fall festival. There's games and there's dancing and there's food and there's drinks and there's, there's music. That's the feel of what's happening in John 2. There's so many little special moments on the day of the actual ceremony, the bridegroom would take his family and his friends, and they would leave his house, and they would parade through the streets, and they would go all the way to the bride's house, and they would knock on the door, and he would come to get his bride. And there, the family of the bride would open the door, and the bride would be presented, and then the bridegroom would take the bride, and they would walk back together in this long processional as everyone in the street was celebrating, and then they would get to the actual ceremony. The ceremony would be filled with feasts and gifts and the bride would be put right in the center as the center of attention. And there would be blessings and songs sung to her and gifts given to her. And then after the ceremony on that first day, uh, the bride and groom would be accompanied by the entire wedding party back to their home. And so kind of that same trip they took originally would happen again. And all of a sudden that they would begin to march through the streets and everyone was standing there and rejoicing and enjoying the events. Everyone celebrating with them and they would leave them at their house. Now in our minds, that's exactly when you wake up the next day and go to an all-inclusive resort. But apparently they didn't do that. They stayed and enjoyed the five to seven days of party. It's exactly what they did. This is the biggest event in their life. This is the biggest thing their family would ever do. So for the next week, the bride and groom would come back and they would enjoy the festivities. They too would sing and dance and play the games and enjoy the music. And I just love the fact when you think about the scene and when you think about the joy and the celebration and the life and the excitement and all of the food and all of the drinking and all of the dancing and games, I just love that verse 2 says Jesus was invited They wanted Jesus there and they wanted the disciples of Jesus there. But in the midst of all of the music and dancing and food and games, there was some rising tension. Behind the scenes, there was something happening that no one else really knew was going on. That's interesting if you think about the idea of a wedding. So I just say the word wedding. That conjures up all kinds of thoughts in our mind. You might get the feeling of joy and excitement and hope and anticipation. You might think, I've dreamed about this my whole life and I have all these plans. I I know exactly what I want this day to be like. And there's just something that rises up in our heart to think, man, that might be just the most incredible day and just joy and excitement and anticipation. But for others, there may be some other feelings of stress and anxiety and going broke. I mean, let's just imagine, and I'm just making this up as I go. There's this guy and he has four daughters and He, um, he Googles the the cost of a wedding in these days and he then times that by four and then thinks to himself, well, he'd really like to retire someday. I mean, he's not looking for much, but just a little bit. And then he kind of puts that all together and thinks, I'm not sure how this is going to work. And, but then he thinks to himself, and again, I'm just making this up. He thinks, well, at least he's a preacher and the venue will be free and the preacher will be free. But then he realizes that none of his girls are going to want to be married at the church. They're going to want to go to some barn somewhere that I'm going to have to pay for. Hey, this guy's going to have to pay for. it, And then they're not going to want their dad to do it. I'm going to have to pay Adam Tarver to preach my kid's wedding. It's ridiculous. So nothing's free. And so with the idea of a wedding could come a lot of joy and excitement. I can't wait. But a little bit of stress and anticipation. And I will tell you, if you've ever planned a wedding or been a part of a wedding, it's super stressful. Like I've told guys so many times that when Andrew and I got done with our wedding and then our reception and got in the car, the first thought I had was, I'm so glad that's over. Like there's a lot of stress and you kind of start to get this feeling when you think about what's happening here because there's a lot of joy and excitement and everybody's enjoying the party, but behind the scenes, someone is really stressed out. There is the wedding, but that leads us to the second word. There is the woman, the woman. You see, while everyone is enjoying the party, there's an emergency behind the scenes. And for most families, especially the poor, this is the most significant event of their entire life, and it's all about social standing. Now, as I was studying this, I discovered something that is so significant, and I'm going to make the case absolutely biblical. As a matter of fact, I'm going to do more research on this. I'm going to write a position paper and prove once and for all that this is biblical, and that's that in Jesus' day, the groom's family paid for everything, I'm just telling you, I don't know what happened to that tradition, but that sounds awesome. Now, did you know this, that in this day, the bride's family could sue the groom's family if anything went wrong with the ceremony? If there was anything that might have brought dishonor or shame upon the family by something that happened at the ceremony, the groom's family was open to a lawsuit. So that helps us to understand that this is really not just about food and and drink. This is about honor and and shame. It's about the possibility of being incredibly embarrassed. It is all about the honor of the person hosting the party. And so these little words have significant meaning here where it says in verse 3, they have no wine. That That's not just we ran out of Ritz crackers for the crab dip. It's more than that. You see, the idea of wine, as we talked about in our study through Proverbs, is always a symbol of joy and celebration and the life of God. And so to say that there's no more wine means that the party's almost over. To say that there's no more wine means that there's about to be no more joy. Now, I don't know what day it was in the party, but let's say this is day two or three or four. Either way, at the moment, the wine is gone, the party is gone, and the host has failed. This is a massive issue. And their reputation is at stake. And their honor is at stake. And Mary feels it. She feels the potential for embarrassment and shame. She knows the family. She's helping with the festivities. She loves them. And she feels the panic. So she does what you do when the wine runs out. You bring it to Jesus. And so she goes to Jesus and said, they have no wine. And Jesus' response is not exactly what we would expect. He said, woman, What does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, to call his mother woman was not the most endearing way he could have referred to his mother. This was not the normal way to refer to your mother. But you also have to understand in this day, it also was not disrespectful. Now, if somebody at my house called their mother woman, that would be a different story. But that's really not what we're to think here. It was a respectful way to speak to her. But it was not an endearing mother-to-son way, and that's significant. Because there's something happening in the dynamic here. You see, Jesus always honored his mother from the cross. He looked at John the Baptist and said, take care of my mother. We know that he always was submissive to his parents and he honored his father and his mother. He obeyed all of those things and he always respected and loved his mother. But there's something bigger happening here. As Jesus is beginning his earthly ministry, he is separating from the authority of his parents and submitting to a higher authority of the father. And with that one word, he communicates that that's what's happening. Mother, I love you and and I honor you and I'm going to respect you in the way I speak to you. But mother, this really isn't about me and you. This is about me and my heavenly father. And it's so interesting to me at a ceremony which symbolizes a husband and wife leaving their father and mother and cleaving to one another, which is a significant part of marriage. It is, it is an understanding that we don't run back to mom and dad anymore. We run to each other. And so when we're hurt or frustrated or sad, we run to each other. We are leaving the authority of father and mother. And now there's a new union that is taking place at a ceremony that symbolized that Jesus is doing that. Jesus is stepping away a little bit. And saying, as I step into my ministry, I am really ultimately responsible to do what my father tells me, even if it's not what you tell me to do, mother. John chapter 5 makes it very clear that Jesus is the most submissive person that has ever lived. Jesus only does what the father tells him to do. And everything the father does, he, tell, he does, tells him to do, he does. In John 17, Jesus says, I have done everything the father has told me to do. It's so what he says, is one, this, this doesn't have anything to do with me. Like this is not my issue, this is not my problem, this is not my concern. And then he says this, my hour has not yet come. That word hour is significant, the word hour always refers to the the moment in which Jesus dies. It is a reference to his betrayal, his arrest, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And everything Jesus is doing, he's doing in light of that hour. This is the mission that the Father has sent the Son on. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And everything about his ministry exists to get to that moment. That moment in which he will be betrayed, in which he will be crucified. And at that moment, he will take upon himself the sins of the world. He will absorb all of the wrath of God. He will be forsaken by his Father so that we might be accepted by the Father. He came because there was a world lost in sin and the only way for those people to ever be saved is for Jesus to die on their behalf. He has come because as John the Baptist says, he is the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He is the spotless lamb and the only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ. And Jesus knows his mission and he's focused on his mission. His face is set towards Jerusalem all of the time. He is headed toward his death. And what he knows is this, the moment he begins his miraculous work, the clock starts ticking. And it's going to speed up his arrest and betrayal. And he simply says, mother, this is not my time. Mary's response is really interesting. Verse five, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And so I think with with that moment right there, she is both submitting to him. She is both saying, okay, well, I'm not gonna press this issue. I'm gonna leave it up to you, but I'm just gonna say whatever he tells you to do to do do right now but I think there's more than that I I think not only is she saying okay whatever he tells you to do that's what to do I think there's more that Mary's doing as I meditated on this text all week and thought about how we got from hey woman what does this have to do with me all the way to him doing it I have to believe there was somewhere in there one of those motherly looks do we know what I'm talking about Fathers have got them too, but, but mothers have them. Just with one look, you can say everything without saying anything. You See, Mary knows Jesus, and she not only knows his ability, she knows his heart. And her concern is not that Jesus just do something miraculous, but that, that Jesus would do something to spare someone from shame and, and dishonor. And I really believe that at this moment, Mary looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, I know this is not your thing, but you know what? This is really your thing. This is, Jesus, I know you. This is exactly the kind of thing you do. I know your heart for people and I know your love and I know your desire and affection. Jesus, this is, this is what you do. And something at that moment changed because we go from the wedding to the woman to the water. Water is the third word. It says, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water and fill them to the brim. Now, every detail is significant, but particularly this idea of the Jewish rites of purification. And so just picture these six huge stone water jugs that are there filled with water. And the reason is, is because it was required of Jews by the Jewish law that they would wash their hands every time that they ate. And it's not just for cleanliness. It's a picture of the need for our hearts to be purified. As a matter of fact, this will come to be what baptism actually symbolizes, the the need to be purified by something other than ourselves, that we're dirty and we need to be purified. And so think about this. If you had hundreds of people at the wedding, which we know that they do based upon all the details of the text, and every one of them had to have their hands washed before every single time they ate and they were there all day for seven days, that's a lot of hand washing, a lot of water. And so all of these jars were there. So when you came to eat, you'd put out your hands, a servant would take something and then pour it over your hands. You would wash them and you would go and every single person would do this. And so Jesus simply looked at those large, six stone water jars And ask them to be filled, overflowing all the way to the brim. So we have the wedding, the woman, the water. And finally, the fourth word is the wine. It says that in verse 8, he said to them, Now draw some out and, and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants had drawn the water new, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. We have no details on the miracle. We have no idea when it happened or how it happened. All we know is that he said, fill them up to the brim, and then at the moment in which they dipped out of him, it wasn't any water, it was wine. We know that Jesus did it. We seem to indicate that he didn't do it with the power of his word. He just thought it, and it just happened. And so there's obviously a demonstration of miraculous power here. But I just find a couple of things really interesting that it's not just wine that he makes, but the best wine. And he doesn't just make a little, he makes a lot. We talked about this in our study of of Proverbs, that wine in Jesus' day was always diluted with water. It did not have the alcohol content the same as it does now The truth is, is that the longer the party went, the more they just added water and diluted. And so on the first day of the party, you would get the best wine. It would taste the best. It was the least diluted. But the longer the party went, the more water they would add. All of a sudden until the time when the person serving the wine realized there's not much wine here. This is just water. And it was at that moment in which Mary probably looked into a glass that had been poured and thought, there's no more wine. And she runs to Jesus. And I think it's interesting that Jesus does not just make wine. He makes the best wine. He makes wine that's better than the wine at the first day of the party. And everyone notices how good the wine is. And I find it interesting that he makes so much wine. So he fills up these six stone water jars with 20 to 30 gallons each. That's 180 gallons of wine. Listen to this. Jesus makes 900 bottles of wine. 900 bottles of wine. So the text emphasizes two things. This was really good wine and there was a ton of it. So you just ask, well, why? Why is that emphasized? I mean, is this a really big party? Is it early in the week? Does Jesus know there are heavy drinkers there? Like, I don't know but probably not any of those things. The reason the text ends with this emphasis on the amount of wine and the quality of the wine is because in reality, this story really isn't about a wedding and it's really not about a woman and it's really not about water and it's really not about wine. It's about Jesus manifesting his glory. You see, every single detail of the text is saying something to us about Jesus and about His glory, it is manifesting his glory. That's why it ends by saying this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana of Galilee and he manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So what happened is the disciples not only saw the ability of Jesus, they saw the heart of Jesus. So the question we have to ask is this, what do those things tell us about the glory of Jesus? Like what does every one of those things say that would cause us To be captured by Jesus, by the heart of Jesus, and then believe in him, and then know that we can find life in him. You might be wondering, we hear all this about life. How do I know I can find life in Jesus? Well, there's something that this text tells us about Jesus that should make you know that you can find life in him. Well, what is it? Well, I think every one of those four things tell us something about the glory of Jesus. First, there's the wedding. Get this down. The wedding teaches us That Jesus enjoys your presence and relentlessly pursues you. Jesus enjoys your presence and relentlessly pursues you. I find it really interesting that Jesus only had three years of ministry, that goes really quickly. You now we say sometimes that the, with parenting, the days are, uh, are, are long, but the years are short. Three years of ministry goes like that. I just find it interesting that Jesus only had three years of ministry and he spent his first entire week at a party and he was eating and he was drinking. Well, how do you know? Because the religious leaders confronted him, the son of man comes eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. Part of the way they confronted Jesus is because they saw him at parties. I just find it interesting that he spent his whole first week not rushed, not anxious to go do something, not anxious to get a lot of people, but just celebrating. He was singing. He was dancing. He was enjoying the food and the atmosphere and the drink and the games. that Jesus spent his first week. I love the way that James Montgomery Boyce says it. Listen to this carefully. He says, I think this point is important. For this is the first of many stories suggesting that Jesus was always welcome among those who were having a good time. Does that change your view of Jesus? That Jesus was always welcome where they were having a good time. I think our thought is, hey, we're having a party. Don't invite Jesus. But Jesus was invited with his disciples, and the party got better because of what Jesus did. It didn't get worse. Everything was better when Jesus was there. I think what you have here in the wedding is a picture, listen to me very carefully here, this, of what Jesus actually really wants from you. Isn't that a big question? What does Jesus want from me? I think the wedding shows us. And it shows us that what Jesus wants is not really your actions. What he really wants is your presence. He hasn't come to just gather an army of people that do what he says. He's come to gather a group of people who know what it's like to be with him. He wants you to know that he loves being with you. He wants to be in your presence. He enjoys your company. And so our constant push to be alone with Jesus and have time with Jesus grows out of our understanding that Jesus loves time with you. And seeing Jesus enjoying the presence of people at a wedding as a part of his ministry communicates exactly what Jesus wants. And do you remember from Genesis 2 all the way to Revelation 19, the greatest analogy we have, the greatest metaphor of our relationship with God is always a wedding. It's always God and as, the, as the bridegroom pursuing his bride. You just read through all of the prophets and all throughout the prophets is God coming saying, listen, I have pursued you and I have come after you because I love you and I long for you and I want you and I've brought you to myself. So much so that the prophets often call idolatry spiritual adultery. Why? Because you have forsaken your groom. God wants us to understand through that metaphor that he relentlessly pursues us because he passionately loves us and deeply longs to be with us. Can I say that again? He relentlessly pursues you because he passionately loves you and deeply longs to be with you. And that's not just a picture of our eternity. That's a picture of our present reality. All God has ever wanted is to be with us. And he sends Jesus to rescue us. Why? To bring us back to himself. And for all of eternity, we're going to start with the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then this union with God for all of eternity. And that's what he wants right now. He wants you. He wants your presence. He wants to be with you. In the midst of all the things you might hear the Lord wants, what he really wants is you. And the wedding simply says to us, Jesus enjoys your presence and he relentlessly pursues you. But what does the woman say to us? She says this, Jesus is determined to save us from sin and shame. Jesus is determined to save us from sin and shame. See, when Jesus says, my hour is not yet come... What he's communicating is that he has come to die and he has come to die for our sins. He has come to die because we are enslaved to sin and we need someone to rescue us and only Jesus can rescue us from our sins and Jesus has come to do that. But my fear is that in all of our talk, rightly so, about justification by faith and the righteous requirements of the law and about how Jesus declares us righteous before a holy God, all of that good and right must be emphasized. We might forget that in the midst of all of that, there is a God that is very interested in the here and now with you. Like, has he come to save you from your sins eternally? Absolutely. Is he good news for later? Yes, but he's good news for now. And what happens in this moment is Jesus says, my hour is not yet come. I came to do this. But Mary knows that he also came to do the right now. There's an old black gospel song that says he's a right now God. That's exactly what it is. He is a right now God. Yes, he's come to save you from your sin, but you know what else he's come to do? He's come to take all of your shame and all of your sin and all of your discouragement and all of your defeat and all of your fear and all of your anxiety that you have right now and deal with it right now. He is interested in the right now. And Mary knew that. Mary knew that Jesus was right here at the wedding and was gonna be concerned with what's going on right now because he is determined not only to save you from your sin, but to save you from all of your shame and all of your discouragement and fear and anxiety right now today in this place this morning. What about the water? The water tells us this, that Jesus replaces our lifeless religion with living in loving union. Jesus replaces our lifeless religion with living and loving union. You see, what he's saying here is that what these religious practices could never do with these six stone water jars and the Jewish rites of purification, what they could never do, Jesus does in overabundance. Why would they emphasize they filled them to the brim? Because what Jesus was saying is this. You can fill up your life with as many religious practices that you want to, but if you don't have Jesus, they don't mean anything. Like, just fill them up with the water of religious practices. But if there's no Jesus, it doesn't mean anything. And I'm so burdened. This happens to me often. I'll talk to someone who may be a member of our church for 40 years, and they have served and they've been active, but just by spending time with him, there's just no talk of Jesus. There's just no love for Jesus or affection for Jesus. And you realize it's possible to fill the water jars up to the brim of religious practice and totally miss Jesus? And then you got nothing but lifeless religion. That doesn't do anything for you. What Jesus does is fill those up to the brim, symbolizing the, the religious practices and he says, I want to, in a moment, transform all of those into the joy of my presence, into living, loving union with me. Jesus has come to completely wreck our old and lifeless system of religious practice and say, what I really want from you is you and your presence. And I want you to be with me. I was in a meeting a couple of weeks ago and someone quoted me back to me. And... Um, They said a couple of weeks ago that I was praying and I remember this moment and I was deeply burdened for our church and I began to pray and they said they wrote the prayer down and they've been praying it every day. And the prayer was this, Lord, would you please kill any ounce of lifeless, passionless religious practice in our church Lord, would you just kill it? Like there's any just religious practice that doesn't mean anything and it's hollow and it's empty. We want to be done with it. We don't want to be a church that is leading people towards more religious practice. We want to be a church leading people towards intimacy with Jesus. To just keep going to Jesus and knowing Jesus and you to find life in Jesus there. What Jesus wants from you is to be passionately in love with him. What about the wine? The final thing is this. The wine tells us that Jesus is inviting us into a life of abundant joy. Jesus is inviting us into a life of abundant joy. He didn't come to kill the party. He, he came and the party got started. Like what Jesus did is he brought real and lasting life into the party. Everything was better when Jesus showed up, when Jesus acted, and when Jesus brought a new creation, which is really pointing us back to John 1, that what has to happen in your life is a new creation. The water has to be turned to wine. God has to create something in you. When he does that, what happens? Everything's better. The wine is better. And there's more and there's an abundance. This is John 7. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. You are drinking out of the water of religious practice when Jesus is offering you the wine of abundant joy. So he's just inviting you to come and to find in him lasting joy. If you write cross references in your Bible, which is a habit of mine, but right beside John 2, just write John 10.10. Because John 10, 10 says, Jesus has come to give life and life abundantly. And I think John 2 is an actual picture of what he's doing. What he's saying, listen, I'm gonna step into your life, into the everyday affairs of your life. Just a party where there's an emergency and you've run out of wine and I'm gonna do something in your life. And I'm gonna bring something new and I'm gonna create something new and what I'm gonna do is gonna be better and what I'm gonna do is gonna be lasting and what you don't even realize is if you'll allow me to come in and if you'll come to me, What happens is, I'm going to give you lasting joy. One of the things that's um, often challenging about being a pastor, Brother Bill, you certainly know this, is you just know a lot. And you know a lot you don't want to know, and things you wish you didn't know, and it part of, honestly, part of the, even the, just the responsibility, but the joy of being a pastor is being able to come along people's lives. And there's something really good about that and, and holy and right. And, and, and it's a joy for me to be involved in your life. But then at the same time, I look out in this room and, and I can often just know that there's a lot of pain and a lot of sorrow and a lot of hurt and a lot of disappointment and a lot of despair and a lot of anxiety and a lot of crushed dreams and expectation. And so that makes me realize that sometimes I can get up here and say, Jesus wants to invite you into a life of abundant joy. And you're going, I don't see it. So I've been thinking about that all week. And I think when we come to the end of this text, we just have to ask one question. What do we do when the wine runs out? What do you do in the wine of, of the joy of God's presence and, and the wine of fellowship with him and, and the wine of peace? What do you do when that starts to run out? Because it's going to happen. You will have moments in your life in which it feels like the wine is running out when there's no closeness to God, when his presence is no longer there, when there's no joy there. What do you do when the wine runs out? And the answer is you do exactly what Mary did and you just take it straight to Jesus. You say, Jesus, I have no more wine. Jesus, I, I feel empty and... lifeless, and Lord, I need you to do something, because that's exactly what, what Jesus does. Jesus has come to turn us from death to life and darkness to light and dread to joy and anxiety to peace and despair to hope and isolation to family and loneliness to acceptance, not just because he can, but because he wants to. And so whenever you think about Jesus turning water into wine, don't just think about the power of the miracle. Think about what it says about the heart of Jesus. To say that Jesus turns water into wine, it means this, that he will take your emptiness and fill it with abundance if you just come to him like Mary did and ask. And we do it time and time and time again. And we know that he never gets tired of us asking. And he never gets tired of us coming to him. And he never gets tired of us bringing all of our emptiness and asking him to fill it because what brings more glory to Jesus than us saying, Jesus, there is nothing that is better to you and nothing that can fill me but you. Would you just fill me up once again? That's the good news that Jesus turns water into wine. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.